Family feuds. Family feuds. History is full of them. From European kings to oriental emperors, families have squared off with families. They fought with each other, sometimes for generations. These conflicts are often called vendettas. That's an Italian word which means blood feud. If you read Shakespeare's classic, Romeo and Juliet, you know of the fictional feud between the Capulets and the Montagues. American folklore has made famous the Appalachian border war between the Hatfields of West Virginia and the McCoys of Kentucky. One week in a year, college football showcases its border wars. It's a Saturday full of interstate rivalries or family feuds, Florida versus Florida State, Texas versus Texas Tech, Alabama versus Auburn, Georgia versus Georgia Tech. In fact, for the last 40 years, believe it or not, families have squared off against families each night on the popular television show, Family Feud. Well, Obadiah is about a long-running family feud. In Genesis chapter 25, a vendetta, literally a blood feud, erupts in the family of Isaac. A feud breaks out between brothers, Jacob and Esau. This younger son, Jake, he bought his brother's birthright, then he deceived his father to make it stick. You see, Esau was this manly man whereas Jacob was a mama's boy. Esau had been hunting all morning. He was hungry. No, he was famished. And Jacob had a stew cooking on the fire. Jacob should have offered his older brother Esau a cup of chili for free, but he didn't. He baited Esau. He swapped a bowl full for his birthright. You see, if Esau had valued ultimate blessings, spiritual blessings, as much as he did a belly full of stew, he would have said no to the deal. But he didn't. He agreed. His hunger pangs were physical, not spiritual. Perhaps Esau never took his kid brother seriously. Could be. Perhaps he figured that he could just bully little Jacob, you know, eat the stew and keep the birthright. Esau never imagined that Jacob had the chutzpah to impersonate him and to deceive dad. Esau had Jacob pegged wrong. You remember the story, the kid velcroed hair to his arms and legs, pretended to be his older, mature, hairier brother Esau. Father Isaac took the bait. He blessed his younger son over Esau, the older sibling, And it's interesting, even after Isaac realized he had been had, he refused to reverse the blessing. By faith, Hebrews 11 tells us, Isaac saw the hand of God at work in the outcome of the circumstances. In this family feud, both brothers were at fault. Jacob was a deceiver. Esau was carnal and short-sighted. Later, Jacob admitted his error Esau never did. Esau was a proud man. He became bitter, very, very bitter. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17 says that bitterness took such a hold on Esau's heart. And I quote, afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessings, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. 
Esau was sorry for his loss. He's sorry for what had happened to him, but he remained too bitter over his brother's double cross to admit his own fault in the matter. Esau never found repentance because he could never shake his resentment. And here's the greater tragedy. This feud didn't end with the brothers. It continued with their descendants. The Edomites, or the offspring of Esau, and the children of Jacob, who was Israel, fought and quarreled for centuries. This family feud became a border war, a blood feud, a vendetta that carried on for several thousand years. And Obadiah was the prophet that God sent to confront the nation of Edom. This short, succinct message reveals their underlying sin and the behavior that produced it. God will conclude this feud. He will judge the sons of Esau. In the first 16 verses, we find the destruction of Edom. In the last five verses, we'll discuss the deliverance of Zion or Israel. And here's an example, a great example, of why we call these last 12 books of the Old Testament, quote, minor prophets. Obadiah, Obadiah is minor in its length, just 21 verses. In fact, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament, and yet it carries a very strategic message. Minor is the label that denotes its size, not its significance. The major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, they average 46 chapters apiece. The minor prophets, just six chapters. And Obadiah's 21 verses, even less, are also inspired by God. In fact, Obadiah is just as inspired by God and just as vital to us as Isaiah's 66 chapters. You could say the minor prophets pack a major message. Well, the book begins, the vision of Obadiah. Now, Obadiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. But let me introduce you to this prophet's neighborhood. The Philistines lived on the western seacoast. They worshipped the false god Dagon. He was half man, half fish. Oh, their worship was a little fishy. The northern Canaanites, they bowed to Baal, the bull. And he was just that, a lot of bull. Ammon was east of the Jordan River. They worshiped a false goddess named Chemosh, indulging in sort of a 50 shades of gray kind of sexuality. That was the Ammonites. And then the Moabites to the east were the pro-choice crowd. They sacrificed their children to Molech. Everybody had their idol. That's the point, except for two nations the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. You see, Jacob and the Jews worshiped Yahweh, the one true God, but the Edomites worshiped no God. They were the ancient atheists. Rather than trust in a God, they relied on themselves. Instead of a deity, the Edomites were the do-it-yourselfers. They, had, they were their own God in essence. As a matter of fact, the Edomites are a lot like modern-day Americans. We're also guilty of idolizing initiative and ingenuity and technology. You know, we like to do it ourselves as well. 
The Edomites were the original can-do people. They were industrious and innovative. These people carved out huge cities from the cliffs south of the Dead Sea. They made famous, uh, the most famous effort of their architecture was the rock fortress of Petra. These Edomites figured that they could defend themselves. They thought God was irrelevant. And just like their forefather Esau, who saw more nutrition in a bowl of stew than in God's blessing, the Edomites failed to recognize their need for God. And so Obadiah begins, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. Here was God's beef with the Edomites. They were proud. They were proud. And because they had the big head, God says he will make them small among the nations. He warns them he's raising up an army to come against Edom. Obadiah tells Edom in verse 3, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. How ominous is that when the Lord says, I'm bringing you down. Edom thought he was high and mighty, but God tells him, you're going down. The Edomites saw themselves as a soaring eagle, but God will bring them down like a dead duck. The territory of Edom was a swath of land southeast of the Dead Sea. It was an area of about 30 miles wide by 100 miles long. The people of Esau made their home in the cliffs and in the caves of the Rocky Highlands. Edom's capital was Petra, perched 5,000 feet above the Dead Sea. If you've seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you've seen the featured attraction of the city of Petra. It's called the Treasury. We were there uh, just a few months ago. As a matter of fact, here's a photo I, I took of Indiana Adams riding off from, from Petra there. In the movie, the treasury is the cave where they found the Holy Grail. In reality, it's merely a rock facade. Go inside and it's just a small room behind it. But the treasury is just one of hundreds of structures scattered all along the mountainsides. It's a vast architectural complex. And the feature that made Petra so formidable was its entranceway. It's called the Sick. It's a passageway 15 feet wide by a mile long by hundreds of feet high. Thus, for an invading army to reach the city, it had to pass through this long, narrow gorge. The army had to walk a few men abreast. Many war chariots were too wide to navigate the Sikh. This made it easy for the Edomites to pick off their invaders one by one and to defend their city. Petra was considered to be an impregnable fortress, impossible to attack. And this made the Edomites a cocky bunch. 
I mean, they acted as if they had it all under control, as if they were their own God. They were proud and they were fiercely independent. Edom had gotten too big for its britches and God is going to whittle them down to size. Reminds me of the conversation heard one night in the insane asylum. One of the patients shouted, I am Napoleon Bonaparte. The nurse attendant asked, how do you know you're Napoleon? He responded, God told me. Suddenly, another voice from down the hall shouted back, I did not. (laughs) Hey, the Bible tells us that anybody who acts like he's his own God is certifiably nuts. Psalm 14, verse 1, declares the truth. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Independence from God, self-sufficiency, human arrogance is sheer insanity. The notion that any of us can fend for ourselves is an illusion. Guys, there is no such thing as a self-made man or self-made woman. The most successful people understand that they're standing on somebody else's shoulders. I am what I am. You are what you are by the grace of God. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done or how big you think you are. Every one of us needs God. We need God for the air we breathe and for the ability to take our next breath. If you haven't noticed, we live in a world of amazing order and complex symmetry. Our planet Earth is perfectly positioned to sustain and support life. This is no accident. The third rock from the sun is 93 million miles away. Do you realize that if we were 10% closer, we'd burn to a crisp? If we were just 10% further away, we'd turn into an ice cube. On Earth, the air pressure at sea level is 14.7 pounds per square inch. If it were 25 pounds per square inch, it would crush our bodies. If it were five pounds per square inch, our bodies would explode. You see, everywhere you look in nature, you see evidence of design. It makes no sense to chalk up our existence to chance occurrences of accidental circumstances. In a world of intricate design, there has to be a designer. One of the most fascinating proofs of design in nature is our own human DNA, Human genetics are chemically arranged in codes and symbols. Genes overlap in different ways to send messages to the cells of our body that produce different characteristics. Your sexuality, your hair color, your body frame, etc., etc., are all predetermined by your DNA. We can read the code in a preborn baby's genes. We can learn much about them in utero. But who developed this code? Organized code isn't the result of trial and error repetition. Symbolic code requires some intelligence. Human DNA requires a designer. I once saw a cartoon entitled Agnostic Fleas. Two fleas were standing on the back of a canine. One asked the other, you mean you actually believe in dog? See, a flea can have a pretty limited perspective, can't they? They can't see what's obvious. This is the problem with us sometimes. This is the problem with the man who says there is no God. And this was the problem with Edom. They were flea-minded. It's been said, earth houses atheists many. Hell is not occupied by any. 
Ultimately, we will all admit the obvious. We really do need God. Edom's boast reminds me of Muhammad Ali in his boxing heyday. Once he boarded a plane, and he was asked by the flight attendant to buckle his seatbelt. That's when the uh, Ali said to the flight attendant, Superman don't need no seatbelt. That's when the flight attendant replied, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> Ali humbled himself and buckled his seatbelt. The Edomites also thought they were a superman. Obadiah says that God is going to prove you're a super chicken. Verse 5. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen Till they had the, the, until they had enough, if grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. In other words, when thieves hit a house, they take only the valuables. They always leave some items behind. Likewise, grape, grape gatherers, they pick only the best grapes. They usually leave behind a few gleanings for the poor. And yet the nations that are going to invade Edom, Obadiah tells us, are going to take it all. Edom's hidden treasures will be ripped off. Edom will be cut off. You know, the area around Petra is such a huge and intricate series of canyons and caves. There's no shortage there of hiding places. It would be easy for Edom to hide all of its treasures and yet here, Obadiah tells them that one day, those hidden treasures are going to be searched out and they're going to be looted. They'll even be betrayed by their so-called allies, we're told. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau, then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. And here's one reason God cuts off Edom, verse 10. Here's the main reason. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Esau never got over his bitterness toward Jacob. Even Esau's descendants perpetuated his hatred. The Edomites were a perpetual rock in the shoe of the Jew. One commentator said of Edom's attitude toward his northern neighbor Israel, the only thing about Edom that bordered on religious fervor was their concentrated, persistence, bitter hatred against the Hebrews. Reminds us of the Palestinian hatred against the Jews that exist today. Remember when Israel came out of Egypt and headed for the promised land, it was Edom who refused to allow Moses to pass through their borders. That antagonism was there. Throughout their history, Edom was an antagonist toward Israel, was an enemy. King Saul, David, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Amaziah, Ahaz, Zedekiah, they all waged war against Edom. The conflict with Edom was constant, always under the surface. This was a long-running family feud. 
In fact, you and I can't even celebrate Christmas without reliving the friction between Esau and Jacob, Edom and Israel. Jesus, the newborn king of Israel, was born in Bethlehem. You know that. The king in Jerusalem at the time was a man named Herod. And when the wise men asked about this new king's birth, Herod realized that there was a rival. He became jealous and tried to stamp out his rival. You remember, he ordered the execution of all the male babies under two years old in Bethlehem. Herod claimed to be king of the Jews. That's why he was infuriated when the wise men came seeking the king of the Jews. Herod claimed to be king of the Jews, but he wasn't really a Jew. He was a convert to Judaism. Guess what his birth certificate read? Edomite. Edomite. Edomian or Edomite. King Herod was Esau, part of Esau's bitter bloodline. The family feud addressed in Obadiah becomes a backdrop for the first Christmas. Yeah, verse 11 refers to another episode in this feud. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. Whenever another nation would invade Jerusalem, Edom was always quick to pile on, to sort of take advantage of Jerusalem's distress. Though Obadiah doesn't provide a historical context here, he definitely has a particular incident in mind, no doubt. Here's one of the problems we have with the study of Obadiah. There are actually a dozen Obadiahs in the Old Testament. We're not sure which one this Obadiah was or when he served. Depending on the date, there are several possibilities for when foreigners enter Jerusalem and for the situation that's referred to here. Some scholars place this in the middle of the 9th century B.C. Edom rebelled against King Jehoram, and Jerusalem was attacked by the Philistines and the Arabians. It could be that Edom joined them at that time. Other scholars lean toward Babylon's invasion of Judah, which occurred much later in 586 B.C. We know that when Babylon conquered Jerusalem, Edom rejoiced. There's a psalm, Psalm 137, verse 7, that records their reaction. It says, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raz it, raz it to its very foundation. In other words, the Edomites became Babylonian cheerleaders. The walls of Jerusalem had been toppled, the temple had been burned. His brother Jacob, the Jews, were reeling. They were about to be taken into captivity. Yet Edom stood on the sidelines and egged on the Babylonians. They cried out for more and more carnage. They wanted to run up the score in essence. Pour it on. They seethed with bitterness. There is a verse. It's found in the Apocrypha. In a book called 1 Esdras 4 verse 45. Now understand what the Apocrypha is. It is not inspired scripture, but it is some interesting history, some stories as well. And First Estras was written just after the fall of Babylon to the Persians. The Jews were about to enter into their 70-year captivity. They would spend their time there in Babylon and they would return home. And that's when a Jew named Zerubbabel, you remember Zerubbabel? We've talked about Zerubbabel. 
He reminds the king of Persia, and this is what's written in 1 Esdras. You also vowed to build the temple, which the Edomites burned when Judea was laid waste by the Chaldeans. Notice what Zerubbabel says. That Edom helped the Babylonians set fire to God's temple when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. It just shows the intensity of Edom's hatred for the Jews in Jerusalem. Well, next, Obadiah, he peppers the Edomites with a series of should nots. He tells them, you shouldn't, you should not. Verse 12, but you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity. Nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. In other words, they had entered the city like scavengers to pick through their brother's remaining belongings before the Babylonians took them back to captivity, back to Babel. Edomites were predators. They were scavengers. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. These Edomites even patrolled the caravan routes leading south out of Jerusalem for Egypt to arrest any of the Jews who might try to escape. When Judah was at its lowest point, after its the city had been destroyed, Jerusalem had been destroyed. When Judah was at its lowest point, his own brother Esau kicked him in the ribs. See, Edom's sin was rubbing it in. They took pleasure in their brother's distress and calamity and demise. They enjoyed seeing the Jews squirm and sweat and suffer. Edom did nothing to help the Jews, but applauded that they were led away in chains. And here's a word to all you Georgia Tech fans who happen to still be relishing beating the Bulldogs this past year. Beware of the sin of rubbing it in. Don't be Edomites and rejoice in your foe's demise. I once had a supervisor. His name was Ralph. We worked together at the DuPont, DuPont Distribution Center over in Dorval. One Friday afternoon, I was locking up. We were at the end of a long week. We were wrapping it up and heading home. I parked a forklift and gotten everything ready, locked the door. And when I went out on the dock, I found an old hobo, a homeless man. He'd come in on a railroad car, and he was lying in a drunken stupor on our warehouse dock. Now, according to company policy, Ralph should have run the fellow off the property. Instead, at Ralph's suggestion, I went back into the warehouse I got some of the foam packing material we used to ship product, and I brought it out there, and I set him up a little bed made out of packing material on the, on the uh, loading dock. Ralph told me to go in and get him a soda out of the machine and a pack of crackers. We laid them there next to the foam mat so the guy would have something to eat when he woke up. And I'll never forget what Ralph told me before we left that afternoon. He said, Sandy, never kick a man when he's down. You never know when you might be that man. You see, Edom should have had mercy 
on his fallen brother. But instead, the nation poured salt on the wound, kicked Judah while he was down. Seven times in three verses, verses 12 through 14, God says to Edom, you should not have. God was angry at Edom for the cruelty that he had showed Judah and would punish them as a result. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near as you have done It shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Here's God's message to Edom. What goes around comes around. Beware, be careful. Since Edom kicked Israel, Edom will also get the boot. History tells us this happened. Babylon eventually turned on the Edomites. In addition, 200 years later, around 300 B.C., we're now between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Edom was conquered by the Greek army and their great general, Alexander the Great. Eventually, the Jews gained their independence from the Greeks. That's when Israel and their Maccabean kings conquered and scattered the Edomites among the surrounding nations. And by the 3rd century A.D., Edom was spoken of as a people who no longer existed. As verse 16 tells us, For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. From the time Israel kicked a drought, by the time Edom kicked, a downtrodden Israel onward, they became a nation small and despised, just as Obadiah had predicted. They will, you will be a people as if they never existed. But Obadiah's prophecy isn't over. For not only does he predict God's judgment on the Edomites, what about the target of Esau's hatred and resentment? Israel was the victim of Edom's antagonism. And the last verses of Obadiah are God's promise to bless and to deliver the Jews. Edom's hidden treasures will be ripped off, but the Hebrews' treasures will be recovered and restored. I love verse 17. To me, it is one of the most provocative verses in all of the Bible. Obadiah says, On Mount Zion there shall be deliverance. And there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Think about that phrase for a minute. Possess their possessions. What does it mean to possess your possessions? It would seem to me if something was your possession, wouldn't you already possess it? Not necessarily. William Randolph Hearst was a wealthy tycoon He made his money in the newspaper business. He was also an avid art collector. A number of years ago, Kathy and I visited his castle and saw some of his collection. One day, Hearst was thumbing through a magazine, and he saw this beautiful painting. He called in an assistant, and he made this assistant's mission to go out and to find and to purchase this painting. Well, after combing galleries all around the world, he returned to report the results of a failed mission. Hearst got angry. He wouldn't take no for an answer. 
He sent him out again, and he told him not to come back without this coveted addition to his, to his collection. Well, finally, the painting was located in one of Hearst's own warehouses. You see, William Randolph Hearst had owned the painting the whole time, but he had failed to possess his possessions. And there are followers of Jesus, I'm afraid, who are in the exact same boat. Hey, all that you need, Jesus has already provided. Ephesians 1 verse 3 tells us, By his death on the cross, our Lord Jesus has purchased for us all spiritual blessings. Sitting in God's warehouse right now is unlimited power, an unquenchable love, an inexpressible joy, an unexplainable peace, and otherworldly wisdom. And your name is on exactly all that you need. It was purchased with you in mind. All you have to do now is to snatch it off the shelf. But have you? Have you grabbed it up? Is it your actual possession? And if not, then why not? See, faith is the tentacle. Faith is the suction cup that takes hold of those spiritual blessings. Faith makes the spiritual tangible. It makes the heavenly touchable. It makes the eternal timely. Don't be content just to come to church, just to sing about and read about and talk about the advantages of the Christian life. If you believe it's true, then possess your possessions. Rise up in faith and seize what God has for you. Treat the gifts and the fruits and the graces of his spirit as if they were your own personal possessions because they are. Why do you allow the skepticism of others or your own feelings of unworthiness or maybe even demonic doubts rob you of enjoying what the blood of Jesus has purchased for you? It's time for all of us to possess our possessions. Well, the rest of Obadiah describes how Judah will burn brightly while Edom will flame out. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. There's an interesting prophecy in Isaiah chapter 16 concerning the city of Petra, which was the capital of the Edomites. In the last days prior to Jesus' second coming, outcasts from Judah will flee from the Antichrist into the wilderness and they'll take refuge there in the caves and in the shelters of Petra. What's ironic about that is that in the midst of God's final judgments, the cliffs and the caves that the Edomites once trusted in to save them but didn't will be used by their rivals, the Jews, as a place of safety. In the end, the nation of Edom will be no more, but Israel, the people of God, will govern God's land. And in verse 19, he explains how Israel will rule over what was once the jurisdiction of Edom. He says, The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead, or the land east of the Jordan River. And the captains of, the ho of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites 
as far as Zarephath, the captives of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad, Shepharad, or you see it there, shall possess the cities of the south. Verse 21 applies to the judgment of the nations prior to the coming of Jesus in the kingdom age. It says, then saviors, that is judges, shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Judges will come to judge the Edomites. But notice that last line again. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. In the end, who wins this family feud? Well, you might assume it was Israel, but not really. It's God who wins. And since Israel was aligned with God, Israel shared in God's victory. See, Edom learned the hard way what's true in every conflict. Neither you nor I are on the winning side. Victory belongs to the Lord. See, the question is never, is God on your side? The question is always, are you and I on God's side? That's the question. When you think about Esau and Jacob, their long-running feud, it's amazing how what starts out as a fuss between two brothers over a bowl of stew boils over into the slaughter of all Bethlehem's male babies and eventually into the survival and fall of two nations. Isn't that amazing? You know, they say the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys started when McCoy's hog wandered over into Hatfield land. Hatfield laid claim to it, but McCoy said it was his. The family conflict started to escalate. It took 13 years and 12 killings before both families called for a ceasefire. See, sadly, family feuds, no matter how small, can intensify. They can spill over. They can grow and inflame. They can compound. They can intensify. Perhaps you've been feuding with a brother or maybe a sister or a parent or a child. In recent days, it's escalated. It could be hostility between you and your spouse. Harmony has degenerated into rivalry. Maybe you're in a border war with a neighbor or with a coworker. See, even churches aren't immune from these tribal wars. People get upset with people. They break community. They go across the street and start the second church. We've seen that happen over and over. Christians can stop fellowshipping and start feuding. In all relationships, a simmering hostility can boil over. And here is the thought that I want to leave you with tonight. It is the big idea in Obadiah. We will annoy each other. We will be inconsiderate at times. We'll have our misunderstandings. We'll slight each other. We'll engage in squabbles. We'll have our differences. But simple stuff like a bowl of chili turns into a major breach in family feuds for one reason. Pride. Pride. When one person won't give in, when one person won't say they're sorry, when one person won't admit their fault of the issue. You know, I've done marriage counseling for years and years and years, and I've never had a situation where it was all one person's fault. It takes two to tango. 
And it's pride that divides. It's when I'm going to hold my ground and dig in my heels and refuse to admit my part of the problem. Pride is what divides. It causes little fissures that turn into huge chasms. Obadiah promised Edom if he insisted on thinking he was big stuff, God would make him small. He'll be big all right, a big whoop-de-doo. That's what he'll become. He'll end up despised, not esteemed. God will do the same to any of us who hold on to our pride. That's why we need to humble ourselves. We need to be a people known for our humility. We need to stop focusing on how we've been wronged and realize what we've done wrong. We need to deal with our own sin. God will right the wrongs that need to be righted if we'll get our own heart right. Today, do you need to swallow your pride? Is there a friend or a family member or a co-worker to whom you need to apologize and make amends? Remember the old adage, you never get heartburn eating humble pie. Don't ever forget what comes after pride. A fall. Pride sets you up for a humble tumble. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says it best. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Just ask the Edomites. I like this quote. A man who acts too big for his britches will be exposed in the end. Jesus said it in Matthew 23 verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In 1971, the big fight of the century took place in New York's Madison Square Garden. Muhammad Ali squared off with the champ at the time, jolting, smoking Joe Frazier. Life magazine quoted the boast that Ali made prior to the fight. He said, we're going to decide once and for all who is the king. There's not a man alive who can whoop me. I'm too smart, I'm too pretty, I'm the greatest, I'm the king. I should be a postage stamp. That's the only way I could get licked. But that night, Ali did get licked. Frazier KO'd him. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 rang true. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. See, here's the problem with pride. Pride puts you first. First in your family, first in your marriage, first at your work, first at your church, first in in life, first with your friends, first before God. That's where pride leads. And when you put anything first before God, that's called worship. God hates pride because he wants your worship. It's time for some of us to renounce our pride, to bow our knee to God, to acknowledge how much we need Him. He doesn't need us. We need to call on Jesus and by faith possess our possessions. But remember, pride is the great divider. Trust Jesus and He'll end the feud between you and that other person and the feud between you and Him.